The horn sounded again. Other people were hurrying towards the plaza. The dragon drifted ahead of them like a shark heading towards a wayward airbed, its tail flicking slowly from side to side. Some loony's gonna fight it, said Nobby. I thought someone would have a go, said Colon. Poor bugger'll be baked in his own armour. This seemed to be the opinion of the crowds lining the plaza. The people of Ankh-Morpork had a straightforward no-nonsense approach to entertainment, and while they were looking forward to seeing a dragon slain, they'd be happy to settle instead for seeing someone being baked alive in his own armour. You didn't get the chance every day to see someone baked alive in their own armour. It would be something for the children to remember. Vimes was jostled and bounced around by the crowd as more people flooded into the plaza behind them. The horn sounded a third challenge. That's a slug horn, that is, said Colon, knowledgeably. Like a toxin, only deeper. You sure? said Nobby. Yep. Must have been a bloody big slug. Peanuts, figgins, hot sausages, whined a voice behind them. Hello, lads. Hello, Captain Vimes. In at the death, eh? Have a sausage on the house. What's going on, throat? said Vimes, clinging to the vendor's tray as more people spilled around them. Some kid's ridden into the city, and he said he killed a dragon, said Cut Me Own Throat. Got a magic sword, he says. Has he got magic skin? You've got no romance in your soul, Captain, said Throat, removing a very hot toasting fork from the tiny frying pan on his tray and applying it gently to the buttock of a large woman in front of him. Stand aside, madam. Commerce is the lifeblood of the city, thank you very much. Of course, he continued, by rights there should be a maiden chained to a rock. Only the aunt said no. That's the trouble with some people, no sense of tradition. This lad says he's the rightful heir to... Vimes shook his head. The world was definitely going mad around him. You've lost me there, he said. Heir, said Throat patiently. You know, heir to the throne. What throne? The throne of Ark. What throne of Ark? You know, kings and that. Throat looked reflective. Wish I knew what his bloody name is, he said. I put an order in to Igneous the Trolls all-night wholesale pottery for three gross of coronation mugs. It's going to be a right pain painting all the names in afterwards. Shall I put you down for a couple, Captain? To you, ninety pence, and that's cutting me own throat. Vimes gave up and shoved his way back through the throng, using Carrot as a lighthouse. The Lance Constable loomed over the crowd and the rest of the rank had anchored themselves to him. It's all gone mad, he shouted. What's coming on, Carrot? There's a lad on the horse in the middle of the plaza, said Carrot. He's got a glittery sword, you know. Doesn't seem to be doing much at the moment, though. Vimes fought his way into the lee of Lady Ramkin. Kings, he panted, of Ankh and thrones. Are there? What? Oh, yes, there used to be, said Lady Ramkin, hundreds of years ago. Why? Some kid says he's the heir to the throne. That's right, said Throat, who'd followed Vimes in the hope of clinching a sail. He made a big speech about how he was going to kill the dragon, overthrow the usurpers and right all wrongs. Everyone cheered. Hot sausages two for a dollar made of genuine pig. Why not buy one for the lady? Don't you mean pork, sir? said Carrot, warily, eyeing the glistening tubes. Manner of speaking, manner of speaking, said Throat quickly. Certainly your actual pig products, genuine pig. Everyone cheers any speech in this city, growled Vimes. It doesn't mean anything. Get your pig sausages five for two dollars, said Throat, who never let a conversation stand in the way of trade. Could be good for business, could monarchy. Pig sausages, pig sausages, in a bun, and writing all wrongs too. Sounds like a solid idea to me. With onions. Can I press you to a hot sausage, ma'am? said Nobby. Lady Ramkin looked at the tray around Throat's neck. Thousands of years of good breeding came to her aid, and there was only the faintest suggestion of horror in her voice when she said, My, they look good. What splendid foodstuffs. Are they made by monks on some mystic mountain? said Carrot. Throat gave him an odd look. No, he said patiently, by pigs. What wrongs, said Vimes urgently, come on, tell me, what wrongs is he going to right? Well, said Throat, there's, uh, well, there's taxis, that's wrong for a star. He had the grace to look slightly embarrassed, 
paying taxes was something that, in Throat's world, happened only to other people. That's right, said an old woman next to him, and the gutter of my house leaks something dreadful and the landlord won't do nothing. That's wrong. And premature baldness, said the man in front of her. That's wrong too. Vimes's mouth dropped open. Oh, kings can cure that, you know, said another proto-monarchist knowingly. As a matter of fact, said Throat, rummaging in his pack, I've got one bottle left of this astonishing ointment, what is made, he glared at Carrot, by some ancient monks who live on a mountain. And they can't answer back, you know, the monarchist went on. That's how you can tell they're royal, completely incapable of it. It's to do with being gracious. Fancy, said the leaky guttering woman. Money, too, said the monarchist, enjoying the attention. They don't carry it. That's how you can always tell a king. Why, it's not that heavy, said the man whose remaining hair was spread across the dome of his head like the remnant of a defeated army. I can carry hundreds of dollars, no problem. You probably get weak arms being a king, said the woman wisely, probably with the waving. I've always thought, said the monarchist, pulling out a pipe and beginning to fill it with the ponderous air of one who is going to deliver a lecture, that one of the major problems of being a king is the risk of your daughter getting a prick. There was a thoughtful pause. And falling asleep for a hundred years, the monarchist went on stolidly. Oh, said the others, unaccountably relieved. And then there's the wear and tear on peas, he added. Well, there would be, said the woman uncertainly. "'Having to sleep on them all the time,' said the monarchist. "'Not to mention hundreds of mattresses.' "'Right.' "'Is that so? "'I think I could get them for him wholesale,' said Throat. "'He turned to Vimes, who had been listening to all this with leaden depression. "'See, Captain, and you be in the Royal Guard, I expect. "'Get some plumes in your helmet.' "'Ah, oh, pageantry,' said the monarchist, pointing with his pipe. "'Very important. Lots of spectacles.' What, free? said Throat. Well, I think maybe you have to pay for the frames, said the monarchist. You're all bloody mad, shouted Vimes. You don't know anything about him, and he hasn't even won yet. Bit of a formality, I expect, said the woman. It's a fire-breathing dragon, screamed Vimes, remembering those nostrils, and he's just a guy on a horse, for heaven's sake. Throat prodded him gently in the breastplate. You got no soul, Captain, he said. When a stranger comes into the city under the thrall of a dragon and challenges it with a glittery sword, well, there's only one outcome, ain't there? It's probably destiny. Thrall, shouted Vimes. Thrall, you thieving bugger throat. You were flogging cuddly dragon dolls yesterday. That was just business, Captain. No need to get excited about it said Throat pleasantly. Vimes went back to the rank in a gloomy rage. Say what you liked about the people of Ankh-Morpork, they always had been staunchly independent, yielding to no man their right to rob, defraud, embezzle and murder on an equal basis. This seemed absolutely right to Vimes's way of thinking. There was no difference at all between the richest man and the poorest beggar, apart from the fact that the former had lots of money, food, power, fine clothes and good health. But at least he wasn't any better. Just Richer, fatter, more powerful, better dressed and healthier. It had been like that for hundreds of years. And now they get one sniff of an ermine robe and they go all gooey, he muttered. The dragon was circling the plaza slowly and warily. Vimes craned to see over the heads in front of him. In the same way that various predators have the silhouette of their prey almost programmed into their genes, it was possible that the shape of someone on a horse holding a sword clicked a few tumblers in a dragon's brain. It was showing keen but wary interest. Back in the crowd, Vimes shrugged. I didn't even know we were a kingdom. Well, we haven't been for ages, said Lady Ramkin. The kings got thrown out and jolly good job too. They could be quite frightful. But you're, well, from a posh, from a high-born family, he said. I should have thought you'd be all for kings. Some of them were fearful oiks, you know she said airily, wives all over the place and chopping people's heads off, fighting pointless wars, eating with their knife, chucking half-eaten chicken legs over their shoulders, that sort of thing. Not our sort of people at all. The plaza went quiet. 
The dragon had flapped slowly to the far end and was almost stationary in the air, apart from the slow beating of its wings. Vimes felt something claw gently at his back, and then Errol was on his shoulder, gripping with his hind claws. His stubby wings were beating in time with those of the bigger specimen. He was hissing. His eyes were fixed on the hovering bulk. The boy's horse jigged nervously on the plaza's flagstones as he dismounted, flourished the sword, and turned to face the distant enemy. He certainly looks confident, Vimes told himself. On the other hand, how does the ability to slay dragons fit you for kingship in this day and age? It was certainly a very shiny sword, you had to admit that. And now it was two of the clock the following morning, and all was well apart from the rain. It was drizzling again. There are some towns in the multiverse which think they know how to have a good time. Places like New Orleans and Rio reckon they not only know how to push the boat out, but set fire to the harbour as well. But compared to Ankh Morpork, with its hair down, they're a Welsh village at 2pm on a wet Sunday afternoon. Fireworks banged and sparkled in the damp air over the turbid mud of the River Ankh. Various domesticated animals were being roasted in the streets. Dancers congered from house to house, often managing to pick up any loose ornaments while doing so. There was a lot of quaffing going on. People who in normal circumstances would never think of doing it were shouting, Hurrah! Vimes stalked gloomily through the crowded streets, feeling like the only pickled onion in a fruit salad. He'd given the rank the evening off. He wasn't feeling at all royalist. He didn't think he had anything against kings as such, but the sight of Ankh-Morporkians waving flags was mysteriously upsetting. That was something only silly subject people did in other countries. Besides, the idea of royal plumes in his hat revolted him. He'd always had a thing about plumes. Plumes sort of, well, bought you off, told everyone that you didn't belong to yourself, and he'd feel like a bird. It'd be the last straw. His errant feet led him back to the yard. After all, where else was there? His lodgings were depressing, and his landlady had complained about the holes, which, despite much shouting, Errol kept making in the carpet. And the smell Errol made. And Vimes couldn't drink in a tavern tonight without seeing things that would upset him even more than the things he normally saw when he was drunk. It was nice and quiet, although the distant sounds of revelry could be heard through the window. Errol scrambled down from his shoulder and started to eat the coke in the fireplace. Vimes sat back and put his feet up. What a day, and what a fight. The dodging, the weaving, the shouts of the crowd, the young man standing there looking tidy and unprotected, the dragon taking a deep breath in a way now very familiar to Vimes, and not flaming. This had surprised Vimes. It had surprised the crowd. It had certainly surprised the dragon, which had tried to squint at its own nose and clawed desperately at its flame ducts. It had remained surprised right up to the moment when the lad ducked in under one claw and thrust the sword home. And then a thunderclap. You'd have thought there'd have been some bits of dragon left, really. Vimes pulled a scrap of paper towards him. He looked at the notes he'd made yesterday. Item. Heavy dragon, but yet it can fly right well. Item. The fire may be hot, yet issueth from an living thingy. Item. The swamp dragons be right poor thingies, yet this monstrous form waxeth full mightily. Item. From whence it cometh none know, nor whither it goeth, nor where it bideth between times. Item. Why for did it burneth so neatly? He pulled the pen and ink towards him, and in a slow round hand added, Item, can a dragon be destroyed into utterly nothingy? He thought for a while and continued, Item, why for did it explode that no one may find it, search they greatly? A puzzler, that. Lady Ramkin said that when a swamp dragon exploded, there was dragon everywhere, and this one had been a damn great thing. Admittedly, its insides must have been an alchemical nightmare, but the citizens of Ankh-Morpork should still have been spending the night shoveling dragon off the streets. No one seemed to have bothered about this. The purple smoke was quite impressive, though. Errol finished off the coke and started on the fire irons. So far this evening, he had eaten three cobblestones, a doorknob, something unidentifiable he found in the gutter, and, to general astonishment, three of cut-me-own-throat sausages made of genuine pork organs. The crunching of the poker going down mingled with the patter of rain on the windows. 
Vimes stared at the paper again and then wrote, Item, how can kingies come of nothingy? He hadn't even seen the lad close to. He looked personable enough, not exactly a great thinker, but definitely the kind of profile you wouldn't mind seeing on your small change. Mind you, after killing the dragon, he could have been a cross-eyed goblin for all that it mattered. The mob had borne him in triumph to the patrician's palace. Lord Vetinari had been locked up in his own dungeons. He hadn't put up much fight, apparently, just smiled at everyone and went quietly. What a happy coincidence for the city that, just when it needed a champion to kill the dragon, a king came forth. Vimes turned this thought over for a while, then he turned it back to front. He picked up the quill and wrote, Item, what a happy chance it be for a lad that would be king that there be a dragon to slay to prove beyond doubt his bony fidis. It was a lot better than birthmarks and swords, that was for sure. He twiddled the quill a while and then doodled. Item, the dragon was not a mechanical device Yet surely no wizard has the power to create a beastie of that mag... mag... magnet... size. Item, why in the pinch could it not flame? Item, where did it come from? Item, where did it go? The rain pounded harder on the window. The sounds of celebration became distinctly damp and then faded completely. There was a murmur of thunder. Vimes underlined go several times. After further consideration, he added two more question marks. After staring at the effect for some time, he rolled the paper into a ball and threw it into the fireplace where it was fielded and swallowed by Errol. There had been a crime. Senses Vimes didn't know he possessed, ancient policeman's senses prickled the hairs on his neck and told him there had been a crime. It was probably such an odd crime that it didn't figure anywhere in Carrot's book. But it had been committed all right. A handful of high-temperature murders was only the start of it. He'd find it and give it a name. Then he stood up, took his leather rain cape from its hook behind the door and stepped out into the naked city. This is where the dragons went. They lie. Not dead, not asleep, not waiting, because waiting implies expectation... Possibly the word we're looking for here is angry. It could remember the feel of real air under its wings and the sheer pleasure of the flame. There had been empty skies above and an interesting world below full of strange running creatures. Existence had a different texture there, a better texture. And just when it was beginning to enjoy it, it had been crippled, stopped from flaming and whipped back like some hairy canine mammal. The world had been taken away from it. In the reptilian synapses of the dragon's mind, the suggestion was kindled that just possibly it could get the world back. It had been summoned and disdainfully banished again. But perhaps there was a trail, a scent, a thread, which would lead it to the sky. Perhaps there was a pathway of thought itself. It recalled a mind, the peevish voice so full of its own diminutive importance a mind almost like that of a dragon, but on a tiny, tiny scale. Aha! It stretched its wings. Lady Ramkin made herself a cup of cocoa and listened to the rain gurgling in the pipes outside. She slipped off the hated dancing shoes, which even she was prepared to concede were like a pair of pink canoes. But nobliesse oblige, as the funny little sergeant would say, and as the last representative of one of Ark Morpork's oldest families, she'd had to go to the victory ball to show willing. Lord Vetinari seldom had balls. There was a popular song about it, in fact, but now it was going to be balls all the way. She couldn't stand balls. For sheer enjoyment, it wasn't a patch on mucking out dragons. You knew where you were mucking out dragons. You didn't get hot and pink and have to eat silly things on sticks or wear a dress that made you look like a cloud full of cherubs. Little dragons didn't give a damn what you looked like so long as there was a feeding bowl in your hands. Funny, really. She'd always thought it took weeks, months, to organise a ball. Invitations, decorations, sausages on poles, ghastly chickeny mixture to force into those little pastry cases. But it had all been done in a matter of hours. As if someone had been expecting it. One of the miracles of catering, obviously. She'd even danced with the, for want of a better word, new king, who had said some polite words to her, although they'd been rather muffled. 
and a coronation tomorrow. You'd have thought it'd take months to sort out. She was still musing on that as she mixed the dragon's late-night feed of rock oil and peat, spiked with flowers of sulphur. She didn't bother to change out of the ball gown, but slipped the heavy apron over the top, donned the gloves and helmet, pulled the visor down over her face and ran, clutching the feed buckets through the driving rain to the shed. She knew it as she opened the door. Normally the arrival of food would be greeted with hoots and whistles and brief bursts of flame. The dragons, each in its pen, were sitting up in attentive silence and staring up through the roof. It was somehow scary. She clanged the buckets together. No need to be afraid. Nasty big dragon all gone, she said brightly. Get stuck into this, you people. One or two of them gave her a brief glance and then went back to their... What? They didn't seem to be frightened, just very, very attentive. It was like a vigil. They were waiting for something to happen. The thunder muttered again. A couple of minutes later, she was on her way down into the damp city. There are some songs which are never sung sober. Nellie Dean is one. So is any song beginning with, As I Was A-Walking. In the area around Ankh Morpork, the favoured air is, A wizard's staff has a knob on the end. The rank were drunk. At least two out of the three of the rank were drunk. Carrot had been persuaded to try a shandy and hadn't liked it much. He didn't know all the words either, and many of the ones he did know, he didn't understand. Oh, I see, he said eventually. It's a sort of humorous play on words, is it? You know, said Colon wistfully, peering into the thickening mists rolling in off the ark, so times like this, I wish old... You're not to say it said Nobby, swaying a little. You agree we wouldn't say nothing? It's no good talking about. It was his favourite song, said Colon sadly. He was a good late tanner. Now, Sarge, he was a righteous man, our Gaskin, said Colon. We couldn't have helped it, said Nobby sulkily. We could have, said Colon. We could have run faster. What happened then, said Carrot. He died, said Nobby in the execution of his duty. I told him, said Colon, taking a swig at the bottle they had brought along to see them through the night. I told him. Slow down, I said. You'll do yourself a mischief, I said. I don't know what got into him running ahead like that. I blame the thieves, Guild, said Nobby, allowing people like that on the streets. There was this bloke we saw had done a robbery one night, said Colon miserably, right in front of us. And Captain Vimes, he said, come on, and we run. Only the point is you shouldn't run too fast, you see, else you might catch him. Leads to all sorts of problems catching people. They don't like it, said Nobby. There was a mutter of thunder and a flurry of rain. They don't like it, agreed Colon. But Gaskin went and forgot. He ran on, went round the corner, and, well, this bloke had a couple of mates waiting. It was his heart, really, said Nobby. "'Well, anyway, and there he was,' said Colon. "'Captain Vimes was very upset about it. "'You shouldn't run fast in the watch, lad,' he said solemnly. "'You can be a fast guard or you can be an old guard, "'but you can't be a fast old guard. "'Poor old Gaskin.' "'It didn't ought to be like that,' said Carrot. "'Colon took a pull at the bottle. "'Well, it is,' he said. "'Rain bounced on his helmet and trickled down his face. "'But it didn't ought to be.' said Carrot flatly. But it is, said Colon. Someone else in the city was also ill at ease. He was the librarian. Sergeant Colon had given him a badge. The librarian turned it round and round in his big gentle hands, nibbling at it. It wasn't that the city suddenly had a king. Orangs are traditionalists, and you couldn't get more traditional than a king. But they also liked things neat, and things weren't neat. Or rather, they were too neat. Truth and reality were never as neat as this. Sudden heirs to ancient thrones didn't grow on trees, and he should know. Besides, no one was looking for his book. That was human priorities for you. The book was the key to it. He was sure of that. Well, there was one way to find out what was in the book. It was a perilous way, but the librarian ambled along perilous ways all day. In the silence of the sleeping library, he opened his desk and removed from its deepest recesses a small lantern, carefully built to prevent any naked flame being exposed. You couldn't be too careful with all this paper around. 
He also took a bag of peanuts and, after some thought, a large ball of string. He bit off a short length of the string and used it to tie the badge around his neck like a talisman. Then he tied one end of the ball to the desk and, after a moment's contemplation, knuckled off between the bookshelves, paying out the string behind him. Knowledge equals power. The string was important. After a while, the librarian stopped. He concentrated all his powers of librarianship. Power equals energy. People were stupid sometimes. They thought the library was a dangerous place because of all the magical books, which was true enough. But what made it really one of the most dangerous places that could ever be was the simple fact that it was a library. Energy equals matter. He swung into an avenue of shelving that was apparently a few feet long and walked along it briskly for half an hour. Matter equals mass, and mass distorts space. It distorts it into polyfractal L space. So, while the Dewey system has its fine points, when you're setting out to look something up in the multidimensional folds of L space, what you really need is a ball of string. Now the rain was trying hard. It glistened off the flagstones in the plaza of broken moons, littered here and there with torn bunting, flags, broken bottles and the occasional regurgitated supper. There was still plenty of thunder about, and a green, fresh smell in the air. A few shreds of mist from the Ark hovered over the stones. It would be dawn soon. Vimes's footsteps echoed wetly from the surrounding buildings as he picked his way across the plaza. The boy had stood here. He peered through the mist shreds at the surrounding buildings, getting his bearings. So the dragon had been hovering, he paced forward, here. And, said Vimes, this is where it was killed. He fumbled in his pockets. There were all sorts of things in there, keys, bits of string, corks. His fingers closed on a stub end of chalk. He knelt down. Errol jumped off his shoulder and waddled away to inspect the detritus of the celebration. He always sniffed everything before he ate it, Vimes noticed. It was a bit of a puzzle why he bothered, because he always ate it anyway. Its head had been about, let's see, here. He walked backwards, dragging the chalk over the stones, progressing slowly over the damp, empty square like an ancient worshipper treading a maze. Here a wing, curving away towards a tail which stretched out to here, change hands, now head for the other wing. When he finished, he walked to the centre of the outline and ran his hand over the stones. He realised he was half expecting them to be warm. Surely there should be something. Some, ah, oh, he didn't know, some grease or something, some crispy fried dragon lumps. Errol started eating a broken bottle with every sign of enjoyment. You know what I think, said Vimes. I think it went somewhere. Thunder rolled again. All right, all right, muttered Vimes. It was just a thought. It wasn't that dramatic. Errol stopped in mid-crunch. Very slowly, as though it was mounted on very smooth, well-oiled bearings, the dragon's head turned to face upwards. What it was staring at intently was a patch of empty air. There wasn't much else you could say about it. Vimes shivered under his cape. This was daft. Look, don't muck about, he said. There's nothing there. Errol started to tremble. It's just the rain, said Vimes. Go on, finish your bottle. Nice bottle. A thin, worried, keening noise broke from the dragon's mouth. I'll show you, said Vimes. He cast around and spotted one of Throat's sausages, cast aside by a hungry reveller who had decided he was never going to be that hungry. He picked it up. Look, he said, and threw it upwards. He felt sure, watching its trajectory, that it ought to have fallen back to the ground. It shouldn't have fallen away, as if he'd dropped it neatly into a tunnel in the sky, and the tunnel shouldn't have been looking back at him. Vivid purple lightning lashed from the empty air and struck the houses on the near side of the plaza, skittering across the walls for several yards, before winking out with a suddenness that almost denied that it had ever happened at all. Then it erupted again, this time hitting the rimward wall. The light broke where it hit into a network of searching tendrils spreading across the stones. The third attempt went upwards, forming an actinic column that eventually rose fifty or sixty feet in the air, appeared to stabilise and started to spin slowly. Vimes felt that a comment was called for. He said, Ugh! 
As the light revolved, it sent out thin zigzag streamers that jittered away across the rooftops, sometimes dipping, sometimes doubling back, searching. Errol ran up Vime's back in a flurry of claws and fastened himself firmly on his shoulder. The excruciating agony recalled to Vimes that there was something he should be doing. Was it time to scream again? He tried another, uh, No, probably not. The air started to smell like burning tin. Lady Ramkin's coach rattled into the plaza, making a noise like a roulette wheel, and pounded straight for Vimes, stopping in a skid that sent it juddering around in a semicircle and forced the horses either to face the other way or plait their legs. A furious vision in padded leather, gauntlets, tiara, and thirty yards of damp pink tulle leaned towards him and screamed, Come on, you bloody idiot! One glove caught him under his unresisting shoulder and hauled him bodily onto the box. And stop screaming, the phantom ordered, focusing generations of natural authority into four syllables. Another shout spurred the horses from a bewildered standing start to a full gallop. The coach bounced away over the flagstones. An exploratory tendril of flickering light brushed the reins for a moment and then lost interest. "'I suppose you haven't got any idea what's happening,' shouted Vimes against the crackling of the spinning fire. "'Not the foggiest!' The crawling lines spread like a web over the city, growing fainter with distance. Vimes imagined them creeping through windows and sneaking under doors. "'It looks as though it's searching for something!' he shouted, then getting away before it finds it as a first-class idea, don't you think? A tongue of fire hit the dark tower of art, slid blindly down its ivy-grown flanks, and disappeared through the dome of Unseen University's library. The other lines blinked out. Lady Ramkin brought the coach to a halt at the far side of the square. "'What does it want the library for?' she said, frowning. "'Maybe it wants to look something up.' "'Don't be silly,' she said breezily. "'There's just a lot of books in there. "'What would a flash of lightning want to read?' "'Something very short. "'I really think you could try to be a bit more help.' "'The line of light exploded into an arc "'between the library's dome and the centre of the plaza "'and hung in the air a band of brilliance several feet across. "'Then, in a sudden rush, it became a sphere of fire "'which grew swiftly to encompass almost all the plaza, "'vanished suddenly and left the night full of ringing violet shadows.' and the plaza full of dragon. Who would have thought it? So much power so close at hand. The dragon could feel the magic flowing into it, renewing it from second to second, in defiance of all boring physical laws. This wasn't the poor fare it had been given before, this was the right stuff. There was no end to what it could do with power like this. But first it had to pay its respects to certain people. It sniffed the dawn air. It was searching for the stink of minds. Noble dragons don't have friends. The nearest they can get to the idea is an enemy who is still alive. The air became very still, so still that you could almost hear the slow fall of dust. The librarian swung on his knuckles between the endless bookshelves. The dome of the library was still overhead, but then it always was. It seemed quite logical to the librarian that since there were aisles where the shelves were on the outside, then there should be other aisles in the space between the books themselves, created out of quantum ripples by the sheer weight of words. There were certainly some odd sounds coming from the other side of some shelving, and the librarian knew that if he gently pulled out a book or two he would be peeking into different libraries under different skies. Books bend space and time. One reason the owners of those aforesaid little rambling, pokey second-hand bookshops always seem slightly unearthly is that many of them really are, having strayed into this world after taking a wrong turning in their own bookshops, in worlds where it is considered commendable business practice to wear carpet slippers all the time and open your shop only when you feel like it. You stray into L-space at your peril. Very senior librarians, however, once they have proved themselves worthy by performing some valiant act of librarianship, are accepted into a secret order and are taught the raw acts of survival beyond the shelves we know. The librarian was highly skilled in all of them, but what he was attempting now wouldn't just get him thrown out of the order, but probably out of life itself. All libraries everywhere are connected in L-space. All libraries everywhere and the librarian, navigating by book sign carved on shelves by past explorers, navigating by smell, navigating even by the siren whispering of nostalgia, was heading purposely for one very special one. There was one consolation. If he got it wrong, he'd never know it. Somehow the dragon was worse on the ground. 
In the air, it was an elemental thing, graceful even when it was trying to burn you to your boots. On the ground, it was just a damn great animal. Its huge head reared against the grey of dawn, turning slowly. Lady Ramkin and Vimes peered cautiously from behind a water trough. Vimes had his hand clamped over Errol's muzzle. The little dragon was whimpering like a kicked puppy and fighting to get away. "'It's a magnificent brute,' said Lady Ramkin, in what she probably thought was a whisper. "'I do wish you wouldn't keep saying that,' said Vimes. There was a scraping noise as the dragon dragged itself over the stones. "'I knew it wasn't killed,' growled Vimes. "'There were no bits. It was too neat. It was sent somewhere by some sort of magic, I bet.' Look at it, it's bloody impossible. It needs magic to keep it alive. What do you mean? said Lady Ramkin, not tearing her gaze from its armoured flanks. What did he mean? What did he mean? He thought fast. It's just not physically possible, that's what I mean, he said. Nothing that heavy should be able to fly, or breathe fire like that, I told you. But it looks real enough. I mean, you'd expect a magical creature to be, well, gauzy. Oh, it's real. It's real, all right, said Vimes bitterly. But supposing it needs magic like we need... like we need sunlight or food. It's a thalmivore, you mean. I just think it eats magic, that's all, said Vimes, who had not had a classical education. I mean all these little swamp dragons always on the point of extinction. I suppose one day, back in prehistoric times, some of them found out how to use magic. There used to be a lot of natural magic around once, said Lady Ramkin thoughtfully. There you are, then. After all, creatures use the air and the sea. I mean, if there's a natural resource around, something's going to use it, aren't they? Then it wouldn't matter about bad digestion and weight and wing size and so on, because the magic would take care of it. Wow! But you'd need a lot, he thought. He wasn't certain how much magic you'd need to change the world enough to let tons of armoured carcass flit around the sky like a swallow, but he'd bet it was lots. All those thefts... Someone had been feeding the dragon. He looked at the bulk of the Unseen University Library of Magic Books, the great accumulation of distilled magical power on the Discworld, and now the dragon had learned how to feed itself. He became terribly aware that Lady Ramkin had moved and saw to his horror that she was striding towards the dragon, chin stuck out like an anvil. "'What the hell are you doing?' he whispered loudly. "'If it's descended from the swamp dragons, then I can probably control it.' she called back. You have to look them in the eye and use a no-nonsense tone of voice. They can't resist a stern human voice. They don't have the willpower, you know. They're just big softies. To his shame, Vimes realised that his legs were going to have nothing to do with any mad dash to drag her back. His pride didn't like that, but his body pointed out that it wasn't his pride that stood a very reasonable chance of being thinly laminated to the nearest building. Through ears burning with embarrassment, he heard her say... "'Bad boy!' The echoes of that stern injunction rang out across the plaza. "'Oh, gods,' he thought, "'is that how you train a dragon? "'Point them at a melted patch on the floor "'and threaten to rub their nose in it?' He risked a peep over the horse trough. The dragon's head was swinging around slowly like a crane jib. It had some difficulty focusing on her right below it. Vimes could see the great red eyes narrow as the creature tried to squint down the length of its own nose. It looked puzzled. He wasn't surprised. "'Sit!' bellowed Lady Ramkin in a tone so undisobeyable that even Vimes felt his legs involuntarily sag. "'Good boy! I think I may have a lump of coke somewhere!' She patted her pockets. "'Eye contact. That was the important thing. She really, Vimes thought, shouldn't have looked down even for a moment. The dragon raised one talon in a leisurely fashion and pinned her to the ground. As Vimes half rose in horror, Errol escaped from his grip and cleared the trough in one leap. He bounced across the plaza in a series of wing-whirring arcs, mouth gaping, emitting wheezing burps trying to flame. He was answered with a tongue of blue-white fire that melted a streak of bubbling rock several yards long but failed to strike the challenger. It was hard to pick him out of the air, because quite clearly even Errol didn't know where he was going to be or what way up he was going to be when he got there. His only hope at this point lay in movement, and he vaulted and spun between the increasingly furious bursts of fire like a scared but determined random particle. The great dragon reared up with the sound of a dozen anchor chains being thrown into a corner and tried to bat the tormentor out of the air. 
Vimes's legs gave in at that point and decided that they might allow themselves to be heroic legs for a while. He scurried across the intervening space, sawed at the ready for what good it might do, grabbed Lady Ramkin by an arm and a handful of bedraggled ball gown and swung her onto his shoulder. He got several yards before the essential bad judgment of this move dawned on him. He went, mm. His vertebra and knees were trying to fuse into one lump. Purple spots flashed on and off in front of his eyes. On top of it all, something unfamiliar but apparently made of whalebone was poking sharply into the back of his neck. He managed a few more steps by sheer momentum, knowing that when he stopped, he was going to be utterly crushed. The Ramkins hadn't bred for beauty, they'd bred for healthy solidity and big bones, and they'd got very good at it over the centuries. A gout of livid dragonfire crackled into the flagstones a few feet away. Afterwards, he wondered if he'd only imagined leaping several inches into the air and covering the rest of the distance to the horse trough at a respectable run. Perhaps, in extremis, everyone learned the kind of instant movement that was second nature to Nobby. Anyway, the horse trough was behind him and Lady Ramkin was in his arms, or at least was pinning his arms to the ground. He managed to free them and tried to massage a bit of life back. What did you do next? She didn't seem to be injured. He recalled something about loosening a person's clothing, but in Lady Ramkin's case that might be dangerous without special tools. She solved the immediate problem by grabbing the edge of the trough and hauling herself upright. Right, she said, it's the slipper for you. Her eyes focused on Vimes for the first time. What the hell's going on? She began again and then caught the scene over his shoulder. Oh, sod, she said, pardon my clatchian. Errol was running out of energy. The stubby wings were indeed incapable of real flight and he was remaining airborne solely by flapping madly like a chicken. The great talons swished through the air. One of them caught one of the plaza's fountains and demolished it. The next one swatted Errol neatly. He shot over Vimes's head in a straight rising line, hit the roof behind him and slid down it. You've got to catch him, shouted Lady Ramkin. You must, it's vital. Vimes stared at her and then dived forward as Errol's pear-shaped body slithered over the edge of the roof and dropped. He was surprisingly heavy. Thank God. Goodness, said Lady Ramkin, struggling to her feet. They explode so easily, you know. It could have been very dangerous. They remembered the other dragon. It wasn't the exploding sort. It was the killing people kind. They turned slowly. The creature loomed over them, sniffed, and then, as if they were of no importance at all, turned away. It sprang ponderously into the air, and with one slow flap of its wings began to scull leisurely away down the plaza and up into the mists that were rolling over the city. Vimes was currently more concerned with the smaller dragon in his hands. Its stomach was rumbling alarmingly. He wished he'd paid more attention to the book on dragons. Was a stomach noise like this a sign they were about to explode, or was the point you had to watch out for the point when the rumbling stopped? We've got to follow it! said Lady Ramkin. What happened to the carriage? Vimes waved a hand vaguely in the direction that, as far as he could tell, the horses had taken in their panic. Errol sneezed a cloud of warm gas that smelt worse than something walled up in a cellar, poured the air weakly, licked Vimes's face with a tongue like a hot cheese grater, struggled out of his arms and trotted away. Where's he off to? boomed Lady Ramkin, emerging from the mists, dragging the horses behind her. They didn't want to come, their hooves were scraping up sparks, but they were fighting a losing battle. He's still trying to challenge it, said Vimes. You'd think he'd give in, wouldn't you? They fight like blazes, said Lady Ramkin, as she climbed onto the coach. It's a matter of making your opponent explode, you see. I thought in nature the defeated animal just rolls on its back in submission and that's an end of it, said Vimes, as they clattered after the disappearing swamp dragon. Wouldn't work with dragons, said Lady Ramkin. Some daft creature rolls on its back, you disembowel it. That's how they look at it. Almost human, really. The clouds were clustered thickly over Ankh-Morpork. Above them, the slow golden sunlight of the disc world unrolled. The dragon sparkled in the dawn as it trod the air joyously, doing impossible turns and rolls for the sheer delight of it. Then it remembered the business of the day. They'd had the presumption to summon it. Below it, the rank wandered from side to side up the street of small gods. Despite the thick fog, it was beginning to get busy. "'What do you call them things like thin stairs?' said Sergeant Colon. "'Ladders,' said Carrot. "'Lot of them about,' said Nobby. He mooched over to the nearest one and kicked it. "'Oi! 
A figure struggled down, half buried in a string of flags. What's going on? said Nobby. The flag bearer looked him up and down. Who wants to know, Tiddler? he said. Excuse me, we do, said Carrot, looming out of the fog like an iceberg. The man gave a sickly grin. Well, it's the coronation, isn't it? he said. Got to get the streets ready for the coronation. Got to have the flags up. Got to get the old bunting out, haven't we? Nobby gave the dripping finery a jaundiced look. Doesn't look that old to me, he said. It looks new. What are them fat, saggy things on that shield? Those are the royal hippos of Ark, said the man proudly. Reminders of our noble heritage. How long have we had a noble heritage, then, said Nobby? Since yesterday, of course. You can't have a heritage in a day, said Carrot. It has to last a long time. If we haven't got one, said Sergeant Colon, I bet we'll soon have had one. My wife left me a note about it. All these years and she turns out to be a monarchist. He kicked the pavement viciously. Hm, he said. A man knocks his pipes out for thirty years to put a bit of meat on the table, but all she's talking about is some boy who gets to be king for five minutes' work. Know what was for my tea last night? Beef dripping sandwiches. This did not have the expected response from the two bachelors. Cool, said Nobby. Real beef dripping, said Carrot. The kind with the little crunchy bits on top and shiny blobs of fat. Can't remember when I last addressed a crust on a bowl of dripping, mused Nobby in a gastronomic heaven, with just a bit of salt and pepper. You've got a meal fit for a king. Don't even say it, warned Colon. The best bit is when you stick the knife in and crack the fat and all the brownie gold stuff bubbles up, said Carrot dreamily. A moment like that is worth a king. Shut up, shut up, shouted Colon. You're just... Ooh, what the hell was that? They felt the sudden downdraft, saw the mist above them roll into coils that broke against the house walls. A blast of colder air swept along the street and was gone. It was like something gliding past, up there somewhere, said the sergeant. He froze. Here, you don't think... We saw it killed, didn't we? said Nobby urgently. We saw it vanish said Carrot. They looked at one another alone and damp in the mist-shrouded street. There could be anything up there. The imagination peopled the dank air with terrible apparitions, and what was worse was the knowledge that nature might have done an even better job. Nah, said Colon. It was probably just some, some big wading bird or something. Isn't there anything we should do, said Carrot. Yes, said Nobby. We should go away quickly. Remember Gaskin. Maybe it's another dragon, said Carrot. We should warn people and... No, said Sergeant Colon vehemently, because A, they wouldn't believe us, and B, we've got a king now. It's his job, dragon. That's right, said Nobby. He'd probably be really angry. Dragons are probably, you know, royal animals, like deer. A man could probably have his tridlins plucked for just thinking about killing one when there's a king around. Tridlins are a short and unnecessary religious observance performed daily by the holy balancing dervishes of authors, according to the dictionary of eye-watering words. Makes you glad you're common, said Colon. Commoner, corrected Nobby. That's not a very civic attitude, Carrot began. He was interrupted by Errol. The little dragon came trotting up the middle of the street, stumpy tail high, his eyes fixed on the clouds above him. He went right by the rank without giving them any attention at all. "'What's up with him?' said Nobby. A clatter behind them introduced the Ramkin coach. "'Men?' said Vimes, hesitantly, peering through the fog. "'Definitely,' said Sergeant Colon. "'Did you see a dragon go past, apart from Errol?' "'Well, er," uh, said the sergeant, looking at the other two. "'Sort of, sir. Uh, possibly it, it, it might have been.' "'Then don't stand there like a lot of boobies,' said Lady Ramkin. "'Get in! Plenty of room inside!' There was. When it was built, the coach had probably been the marvel of the day, all plush and gilt and tasselled hangings. Time, neglect, and the ripping out of the seats to allow its frequent use to transport dragons to shows had taken their toll, but it still reeked of privilege, style, and, of course, dragons. "'What do you think you're doing?' said Colon, as it rattled off through the fog. 
Waving, said Nobby, gesturing graciously to the billows around them. Disgusting, this sort of thing, really, mused Sergeant Colon. People going around in coaches like this when there's people with no roof on their heads. It's Lady Ramkin's coach, said Nobby. She's all right. Well, yes, but what about her ancestors, eh? You don't get big houses and carriages without graining the faces of the poor a bit. You're just annoyed because your missus has been embroidering crowns on her undies, said Nobby. That's got nothing to do with it, said Sergeant Colon indignantly. I've always been very firm on the rights of man. And dwarf, said Carrot. Yeah, right, said the sergeant uncertainly. But all this business about kings and lords, it's against basic human dignity. We're all born equal, it makes me sick. Never heard you talk like this before, Frederick, said Nobby. It's Sergeant Colon to you, Nobby. Sorry, Sergeant. The fog itself was shaping up to be a real Ankh-Morpork autumn gumbo. Like a pea super, only much thicker, fishier, and with things in it you'd probably rather not know about. Vimes squinted through it as the droplets buckled down to a good day's work, soaking him to the skin. I could just make him out, he said. Turn left here. Any ideas where we are? said Lady Ramkin. Business district somewhere, said Vimes shortly. Errol's progress was slowing a bit. He kept looking up and whining. Can't see a damn thing above us in this fog, he said. I wonder if... The fog, as if in acknowledgement, lit up. Ahead of them it blossomed like a chrysanthemum and made a noise like... Vroomp. Oh, no, moaned Vimes. Not again. Are the cups of integrity well and truly suffused? intoned Brother Watchtower. Aye, suffused full well. The waters of the world, are they abjured? Yea, abjured full mightily. Have the demons of infinity been bound with many chains? Damn, said Brother Plasterer, there's always something. Brother Watchtower sagged. Just once it would be nice if we could get the ancient and timeless rituals right, wouldn't it? You'd better get on with it. Wouldn't it be quicker, Brother Watchtower, if I just did it twice next time? said Brother Plasterer. Brother Watchtower gave this some grudging consideration. It seemed reasonable. All right, he said. Now get back down there with the others, and you should call me Acting Supreme Grand Master, understand? This did not meet with what he considered to be a proper and dignified reception among the brethren. No one said anything to us about you being Acting Supreme Grand Master, muttered Brother Doorkeeper. Well, that's all you know, because I bloody well am, because Supreme Grand Master asked me to open the lodge on account of him being delayed with all this coronation work, said Brother Watchtower haughtily. If that doesn't make me acting Supreme Grand Bloody Master, I'd like to know what does, all right. I don't see why, muttered Brother Doorkeeper. You don't have to have a grand title like that. You could just be called something like, well, uh, Rituals Monitor. Yeah, said Brother Plasterer. Don't see why you should give yourself airs. You ain't even been taught the ancient and mystic mysteries by monks or anything. We've been hanging around for hours too, said Brother Doorkeeper. That's not right. I thought we'd get rewarded. Brother Watchtower realised that he was losing control. He tried wheedling diplomacy. 